What's everybody? Welcome back to Martian Media Montage. Episode 79, we're going to be talking Cable Guy, the new guy, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, or at least half of it. California Raisins, Meet the Raisins, not another teen movie. White Phantom VHS, Creep, 2014, digital copy, Marked for Death, number eight. Uh, yeah, a lot of films to talk about. Uh, and mostly VHS, some DVD, and some digital. Uh, one DVD and one at least digital. Uh, recent pickups, I picked up Sleepless in Seattle, Meet the California Raisins VHS, White Phantom VHS, which I'm finishing up in the background right now while I'm talking about this. Uh, Marked for Death, which I didn't realize I had it digitally on my computer, the uh, Steven Seagal 1990 action film. Great, great action film. I'm glad that I watched that. Thank you for the recommendation. Uh, Austin, uh, Ozzy J's Music Days um, on Spotify. Thank you uh, for the recommendation, brother. Uh, not another teen movie. I already have that VHS. It was my copy as a kid. I picked up the DVD on purpose so I can watch the behind the scenes information because I know that movie like the back of my hand. I'm going to talk about it regardless. I'm going to be talking to you guys about all the behind the scenes stuff that I found that was interesting too. Uh, picking up the Meet the Raisins because I was like, dude, California Raisins is classic and I love Claymation. And there's some cool stuff to uh, discuss about that film as well. Uh, a little 28 minute uh, short. Uh, Sleepless in Seattle. I honestly, it's probably committing film blasphemy. I've never seen that and I've never seen When Harry Met Sally. I know they're classic staples in the uh, cinema, you know, factoids and trivia for most people who enjoy films. I just, I haven't seen them yet. So there it is. Uh, and as far as uh, recent pickups, I also just about an hour ago picked up Mario Van, Be- uh, Van Peebles' film called Solo. Uh, I don't think it's nearly as black exploitation as it was when his father was acting. Nor is it anything really close to how he was in Jaws of Revenge as uh, Jake. But uh, this film is basically – it kind of reminds me of uh, Universal Soldier, the way that it looked, uh, the uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme film. But, uh, you know, dollar at a thrift store. Can't beat it. It looks like crap, and I like watching crap. So, I mean, good crap, that is. So there you have it. Eight films. Uh, Cable Guy, New Guy, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, at least half of it because my, for some reason, copy uh, half of it or at least the last half of it or last third just got eaten by my VCR. Uh, I was able to salvage it, but it just, the tracking wasn't working. The audio was there. The picture just wasn't up to par. Uh, Creep 2014, I found that digitally because I did a uh, little like Google search, like, you know, common, weird, obscure uh, films that are horror that you need to watch nowadays. And I found that and I watched it. It has a guy from the league in it and I enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, Marked for Death, White Phantom. Yeah, a lot of stuff to get through. And uh, I've been playing... Uh, Mario Rabbids Sparks of Hope, the continuation from, uh, what is it, uh, Shoot Kingdom Battle. It's the uh, follow-up, the predecessor being a Kingdom Battle. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I finally unlocked Bowser. Uh, I think there's maybe about five or six different stages to get through. It's open world. There's a lot of cool uh, power-ups you can use. It's just, it's a lot more intuitive and easier gameplay to control compared to its predecessor. It's still linear, but it's not as linear, and it's not nearly as open world as your modern insert whatever Rockstar title here. But uh, it is a lot of fun, the strategy RTS. I think I'm about maybe, I don't know, probably 40% complete. And I'm about maybe 20 hours into it. And I'm like, damn, I really have that much more to go. But it's a lot of fun, having a lot of fun with it. This is probably the longest intro I've had in a long time. But I had a lot to say, you know, and I had a good day. Hung out with some buddies that I haven't seen in a while from a uh, previous job. So that was cool. And, uh, you know, I took those guys out to a Mexican restaurant, enjoyed ourselves and just laughed and just bullshitted. It was fun, you know. And then obviously I did an episode earlier today with my buddy Nick. So shout out to Nick. Thank you for that. And, uh, like I said, a little impromptu episode, whether I <laughs> upload this one today or upload it at a later date, but there you have it. Recent pickups, games I'm playing and, uh, films I've been watching. I've been watching a lot since I picked up my uh, VCR for my parents and I've been picking up tapes cause they're just so damn cheap. They're like a dollar a piece. So there you have it. Recent pickups, movies I'm watching, things I've been getting into. And, uh, here it is episode 79. Let's go.
What's going on, everybody? Here it is. I'm going to be talking to you guys about Cable Guy, the first film among eight. Uh, yeah, that at least I'd like to hopefully get through with you guys. Came out in 1996, rated PG-13, an hour and 36. Uh, the cover art says there's no such thing as free cable. And obviously it's Jim Carrey holding a good old-fashioned coax cable. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Okay, has a 6.1 out of 10, obviously, uh, out of 172,000 stars total. Starring Jim Carrey, who has a lisp, and then obviously Matthew Broderick, you know, buys him a book, and he's able to fix his lisp. I mean, that's barely not even the plot. The plot is, uh, it's a comedy, drama, thriller, and rightly, I wouldn't even put it as a thriller. Maybe drama, maybe like a neo-noir black comedy drama. It's it's interesting. It's one of the weirdest, probably, Jim Carrey films he's done. Matthew Broderick plays, eh, well, a, a typical Matthew Broderick character. Uh, Jack Black is rather skinny in this for a change, you know. Uh, pretty interesting seeing that, but the film is about a designer makes a grievous mistake when he rejects the friendship of a borderline cable guy. So the guy used to work for this company and then Jack Black essentially does some digging and discovers, oh, he got fired and he keeps naming himself, uh, different characters from different, uh, TV shows or movies from back in the day. And it has its funny elements, but it's not nearly like Ace Ventura or Dumb and Dumber. For those of you who are obviously a comedic enthusiast, I mean, you probably already know a lot about this film, but I decided to talk about it anyway. Directed by Ben Stiller, yes. Meet the Parents, Meet the Fockers, uh, Dodgeball, I mean, insert classic comedy here, you know, uh, Secret Life, Walter Mitty, whatever. Uh, starring Jim Carrey, Matthew Broderick, and Leslie Mann. Uh, Matthew Broderick, obviously, being Ferris Bueller, Leslie Mann from uh, George of the Jungle. Uh, George Seagal is also in it, Jack Black, we know him, Tenacious D, obviously, right? Classic. Eric Roberts is in this as well. I forget that Andy Dick is in it. He has a very short cameo as uh, the Medieval Times host. That's right, David Cross is in this as well. Owen Wilson, I forgot, yeah, Robin's date when they uh, do like a speed dating type thing. David Cross is the sales manager uh, at the same location where Matthew Broderick's character works at. I forgot about that. Uh, David Cross is pretty funny. He does that, uh, was it Mr. Show with uh, one of the Oda Kirk brothers, I believe. Also, also great. Um, storyline here, I guess, to give you guys a little bit more of a consensus of understanding. Stephen Kovac has been kicked out of his apartment by his girlfriend. Stephen has a new apartment, a.k.a. Matthew Broderick's character, and decides to slip the cable guy, Chip, a.k.a. Jim Carrey, $50 for free cable. Stephen then fakes an interest in Chip's line of work. However, Chip takes this to heart, trying to become Stephen's best bud. When Stephen no longer wants to be Chip's friend, the man who can do it all goes on an assault to ruin Steve's life, which he borderline does. In the backdrop is the delicate subplot of the trial of a former kid star for murdering his brother. Yeah, pretty crazy. The tagline is, once you let him in your house, you're never going to get him out of your life. That's a different, I guess, tagline. Pretty interesting. Rated PG-13 for its thematic, dark elements and crude humor. And I suppose rightly so. It's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty dark uh, for a bizarre comedy, I guess, if you will. Very interesting... Uh, story written by uh or excuse me directed by ben stiller not written by him while filming the scene in which the cable guy plays basketball it's obvious that jim carrey could barely dribble a ball never mind make a basket ben stiller had carrey mime the action without a ball and then added a uh, special effects basketball in uh post-production that's pretty crazy i don't i don't think i knew that i don't think i could tell even for 1996 uh, cgi i guess if you will the scene of the medieval times where uh, the cable guy for steven's chicken and then performs his Silence of the Lambs impression was all improvised. And rightly so, because Jim Carrey's pretty good at that. During one take, Jim asked for the chicken skin out of nowhere. And after doing the Silence of the Lambs bit, Ben Stiller loved it and wanted to keep it in the film, even though it wasn't in the script. If you look at uh, Broderick's face during the scene, you can tell he's cracking up. His reaction is actually a genuine laugh. That's 
pretty cool as well. Jim uh, Carey was negotiating his $20 million salary trivially. Uh, he insisted that his attorney and two managers all wear Ace Ventura dressing gowns so as not to lose their sense of perspective. That's pretty crazy. Uh, uh, Matthew Broderick, in perspective, in relation to Jim Carrey's $20 million, was only paid $2 million. Still trivia. Last bit of trivia here. Some of the cable guys' predictions about the future actually came true, like having the internet, phone, and television through cable, as well as his ability to play video games online. That's crazy. Yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. Uh, cameos. Kyle Gass, obviously from Tenacious D. He's the couch potato who reaches for the book when the cable cuts out, when uh, obviously... Uh, chip lands on the satellite. Pretty crazy. Um, Amy Stiller, Stevens' secretary, is actually Ben Stiller's sister. Uh, that's crazy. Did not know that. All right. And then obviously Ben Stiller himself even makes a cameo when he's uh, on trial in uh, certain sequences when they're watching the news. Oh, boy. What else we got here? Uh, released June 14th, 1996. And its language is also spoken in English and French and also released in France. Filmed at Medieval Times, Buena Park, California. Obviously, therefore, it being filmed in California. More than likely, probably Orange County or uh, Riverside, since that's close by. Produced by Columbia and uh, Lichtmuller Film Corporation. Box office. Budget, $47 million. And it grossed worldwide $102 million. I personally would have thought this would have flopped. Uh, it's it's nothing like what he normally is, I don't know, not necessarily incapable of, just what he normally doesn't portray. Let's see what Wikipedia has to say. Um, it is an American black comedy film, uh, as I stated. Uh, Carrie plays an eccentric cable installer who becomes overly intrusive in the life of a customer, played by Broderick, as we can tell. It has since attained a cult following. And I can see that probably because it's just so different than what you would normally expect from either one of them, really. Uh, First-time screenwriter Lou Holtz had the idea for the film while working as a prosecutor in L.A., declaring that once he saw a cable employee in the hallway of his mother's apartment and started thinking, what's he doing here so late? The screenplay became the subject of a bidding war, won by Columbia at the price of 750 grand, plus 250, so therefore a million, uh, making the movie to get made. The role of the cable guy was originally going to be Chris Farley. And, ah, that's interesting. I don't think I would know. I wouldn't have wanted to watch it then. I don't, I don't know. He later dropped out due to scheduling difficulties. Adam Sandler was also considered for the role of the cable guy. Same thing. I don't... Oh, maybe. Because Adam Sandler does have that kind of like voice. You know, like, yeah, perhaps. I Maybe. I don't know. Or maybe Adam Sandler's character instead of Matthew Broderick, maybe? I could have seen that. Jim Carrey joined the production after a $20 million uh, receiving that he got for a production. Following the signing... Uh, Columbia hired Judd Apatow to produce, of course, because he's done so much comedy. Uh, the studio rebuffed Apatow's interest in directing, suggested to invite Ben Stiller, who was uh, part of a show that Apatow was uh, working on. Stiller was considered to play the role of Stephen, but then it was offered to Matthew Broderick. And yeah, it's much better. I kind of like that Ben Stiller had a little cameo, though, in it. That's super cool. Uh, shoot, what else we got here? Holtz wrote four additional drafts, each one darker than its previous. So I'm, I'm glad we got what we got because anything darker, I probably would have been like, nope, not interested. Apatow and Stiller visited Carrie as he was filming uh, the sequel to Ace Ventura Pet Detective when he was filming When Nature Calls in South Carolina. Over a few days, they riffed a lot of set pieces that were added to the script, further explored how Carrie wanted to perform this particular character. Apatow took the film of the Writers Guild for arbitration to get a writing credit and uh, he retained the sole credit for the script, actually. Pretty crazy. 
Uh, frustration at not getting credited, Apatow himself, because Holtz actually got credit for the script, acknowledged that he was also producer on the film. The Writers Guild requirements are set very high to protect writers in general. That's that's pretty crazy. The fight sequence at medieval times between uh, Chip and uh, Steven is an homage to the Star Trek episode, A Mock Time, including the use of Vulcan weapons, the dialogue, and the background music. Uh, ben Stiller is a huge Star trek fan, so that makes perfect sense from what I'm reading, that that's why they paid homage to that. Only nerd nerds, I suppose, would really know that. Home Media, VHS, December 3rd, 1996. The same year it was released, just a couple months later. That was the copy that I watched. That was my original copy that I had as a kid. DVD, September 15th, a year later, 1997. And then 15th anniversary Blu-ray, March 1st, 2011. Sony reissued it as a uh, manufacturer on-demand title in December 17th, 2019. And it is still available for those of you that want to watch it digitally, I suppose. Reception. Uh, aggregator Rotten Tomatoes, 55% on 80 per, or eighty reviews with an average of 5.7 out of 10. And I guess I can kind of agree with them on that. Metacritic, average score 56 out of 28 reviews. Mixed or average reviews. Cinema score C plus out of an A to F. And I agree only because out of the other films that Carrie has done, this is like one of my least favorite ones that he's done. I, I think I enjoy 23 more or Eternal Sunshine. I mean, because he's done weird stuff as well. I don't know. There's just... Something about this one that I'm just like, eh, I even like The Mask more, man. Even Siskel said, disagreed, calling it a very good film, best since The Mask. So I guess he disagrees with me. Ebert found Carrie's performance so bizarre and creepy that it undermined the entire story and felt the movie was a much more of a dark comedy than it was necessary and deemed to be. And I, I suppose, maybe because you're just, maybe because I'm so used to seeing him in just off the wall, crazy something else, you know, especially like in Dumb and Dumber. I mean, I don't know, like, <sighs> In spite of its mixed reception, the film has achieved a cult following and has been attributed to helping Carrie pursue more serious roles, such as The Truman Show, which I didn't mention, I should have, and Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind, which I did mention. So I suppose, yeah, yeah, okay. And I mean, it has a stellar sound uh, soundtrack as well, you know what I mean? Like, shoot, Cypress Hill is on it, obviously Filter, The Toadies, Silver Chair. Yeah, it's got some classic stuff on there, but... uh. Yeah, there you have it. There's the cable guy. Uh, I felt like it needed to be discussed since I watched it. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. It, it's okay, in my personal opinion. I think there's better stuff that he's done in his catalog of films. But there you have it, cable guy. Moving on to the next film. <clears throat> Continuing on with the episode, I would like to describe another film that has Guy in the title. Um, the new guy <laughs> from 2002, PG-13, an hour and 28 minutes. It has a 5.8 out of 37,000 reviews, according to IMDb. Uh, this is the movie that I had on VHS as a kid. Basically, all these films that I'm watching now, these are all like my tapes that I bought at like Blockbuster or Hollywood Video, whatever the case may be. And uh, in the background, I still got White Phantom going on VHS. I'm reading and writing and uh, obviously talking to you guys as well as watching the film at the same time. I can multitask. Anyway. The cover art says, a zero will rise. Popularity isn't a contest, it's a war. And it's a sign of the times. It has a very early millennium, late 90s feel to it. And it it shows. It's very much so like, you know, a spinoff of like American Pie, road trippy type, uh, animal house type stuff. Um, it's a comedy, obviously. It's about a high school senior branded uncool in the ninth grade, gets himself... Wow, he's, only, he's supposed to be only in ninth grade? That's news to me. Because, I mean, he already looks like he's like... DJ Qualls is his name. He looks like he's like already 
20-something playing a 14, 15-year-old kid, whatever. Uh, he gets himself expelled, so he changes his image to a cool kid at the other town's uh, high school and uh, obviously goes to prison and meets up with, like, Eddie Griffin, who uh, essentially, uh, what do you want to call it, I guess, formulates uh, DJ Qualls' character, uh, Dizzy, as his name is in the film, to, like, this particular badass in order for him to essentially become a cool kid in school. Anyway, moving on. Directed by Ed Dector. Let's see what else this guy did. I don't know if there's anything else that he did that I know about. Okay. He did There's Something About Mary. And uh, I guess that's really it that I know of. Okay. All right. Moving on. <laughs> Something About Mary is a classic. 1998. Uh, this film also has Eliza Dushku, the uh, female from uh, Bring It On with um, Kirsten Dunst, as well as playing Faith in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer series. And I love her in everything she does because I just find her to be such an attractive female. Anyway, Zoe Deschanel is also in this. She plays guitar and she has a band with Jared Mixon, the guy who plays Kirk, who is on drums, who is the uh, bigger black guy in Me, Myself, and Irene, as well as uh, Old School. He's in that. Who else is in this? Uh, like I said, Eddie Griffin plays Luther. He's in prison. Tony Hawk, that's right. There's actually a lot of cameos in this. There was Tony Hawk, uh, Gene Simmons uh, cameo as the Reverend. Tony Hawk plays himself. Tommy Lee from Motley Crue plays himself. Charlie O'Connell, as well as his uh, other brother, the other O'Connell. I can't remember his name. He's in this as well. Um, all cast and crew. You know, screw it. Like I said, I will take a look because there's a lot of people in this. Uh, what else we got? Lyle Lovett, he plays Bear. That's right. That's another uh, cameo for sure. Jumaine Dupree is in this. Henry Rollins, that's right. He's the warden at the uh, prison. I forgot that he's in this. Uh, it, it's so cool to just see like so many cameos in such a weird, quirky film about stuff like this. Um, Vanilla Ice, that's right. He's the uh, record store employee. I forgot about that. Like I said, Kyle Gass picks up a book. That's a pretty funny sequence where he starts reading. Um, I don't, oh, that's right. David Hasselhoff is literally at the end of the film for like a couple minutes. That's right. Yeah. There's a lot of weird cameos in this film. I, I don't know. Ed Dector must've known either a lot of people or that, or they owed him a favor. <laughs> so the storyline here is that Dizzy Harrison is an unpopular high school geek going through a hellish senior year, even though what I just read is that he's in ninth grade. So somebody needs to get their story straight. In an attempt to make a new identity for himself, Dizzy gets himself expelled from his school, learns the techniques of being a cool a person from a prison uh, inmate, uh, Eddie Griffin's character, Luther, and enrolls at a new high school under the alias Gil Harris to make new friends where he soon gains respect from the jocks and geeks alike. Dizzy then gets noticed by the head cheerleader, Danielle, and helps the school football team gain self-respect to win games. But things unknowingly begin to turn sour when Danielle's disgruntled boyfriend begins investigating into Gil Harris. Past to uncover any beef on him to ruin his entire life and turn it upside down. Danielle is uh, played by Eliza Dushku. That's basically his love interest in the film. Uh, rated PG-13 for sexual content. Yeah, sure. Mild language, crude humor, and mild drug references. Yeah, sure. Why not? All right. Trivialistly, we shall take a look. Real life brothers Jerry O'Connell and Charlie O'Connell improvise much of their scenes at the party, and it shows. You can tell they don't look like they have any clue or idea what they're doing, including the climbing on the swings, which they actually weren't intended to do according to the scriptwriter. Uh, as well as when dizzy goes to county jail and is talking to luther a black flag symbol is on the wall behind him oh i didn't notice that man damn that makes perfect sense uh it says that henry rollins obviously the former front man for black flag plays the warden in the film as i mentioned uh moments ago i didn't notice the black flag symbol on the wall man i should have noticed that 
ah, being such a punker. Well, then again, I have black flag tattooed, so I, I can literally look at my shoulder and see it every day. Uh, <laughs> Vanilla Ice, who plays a music store employee who used to work as a bouncer, is credited as Robert Van Winkle, Ice's actual real birth name. In the movie, he is wearing an insane clown posse shirt and a promotional badge for the real Ice's 1998 new metal album, Hard to Swallow. Didn't notice all those little uh, homages and nods to certain things. That's pretty interesting. Uh, students at the Charles Aikens, Atkins, whatever, high school were not allowed to be extras in the film despite the fact that the film was partially shot there. Extras were required to be at least 18, and Atkins only had 9th and 10th grade students attending the school at that time. However, several teachers and staff of the uh, high school got to be extras instead. The theatrical version features... Uh, a patent 1970 spoof, which is true, Dizzy is in uniform, I remember that, while the director's cut features a Braveheart uh, 1995 spoof, uh, which the director felt would be a letter, uh, a better lead into the payoff at the end. Uh, oh yeah, that's okay, so that makes sense, because I think in the trailer you see Patton, the copy that I have, he's in the Braveheart uh, blue face paint garb and the kilts at the end, so okay, alright, alright. Uh, at least that's the VHS copy that I have. Okay. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, I, I'm like losing my uh, voice here. Released May 10th, 2002, uh, language is obviously English, filmed in San Marcos, Texas. Production companies, Revolution, Bedlam, and Frontier. Uh, I think I know Revolution, the others I don't know. Bedlam is essentially a fancy word for a madhouse. That's what it was known as before. Uh, box office, $13 million, and it grossed $31 million worldwide, evidently. Uh, that year. So, I mean, apparently it was a success, but I mean, to me, this is kind of one of those obscure ones as far as comedies go that nobody really talks about. Let me see what Wikipedia has to say. Directed by Ed Decker, as I mentioned, written by David Kendall. Um, let me see what else we got going on here. Yeah, production-wise, the film was shot in Austin, in and around Austin, Texas, San Marcos, Elgin, and Del Valle. San Marcos, um, I wonder if they're referring to San Diego or if there's another San Marcos in Texas. I really don't know. They utilized uh, Texas State University, Driscoll Hotel, and FYE, uh, the record store, at Lakeline Mall between October 23, 2000 until January 12, 2001. The unrated version in the 19, or excuse me, the 92-minute unrated cut, Dizzy appears to be a child of divorce. Interesting. He once had a mother named Beth Ann, but she left the family while Dizzy was doing his Godfather of Soul routine. Miss Kiki Pierce talks about Dizzy's excessive masturbation and becomes his stepmother in the uncensored version, unlike the PG-13 version. Now, that is something that sounds interesting, and if I can find maybe a DVD copy of that, perhaps I'll give that one a go. According to the storyline, the uncensored version, Gil Harris had apparently murdered a guy in Rhode Island before being sent off to prison, while no backstory was made for the name in the theatrical version. Interesting. Receptively, it has a 7% on Rotten Tomatoes out of 99 reviews and a 3.3 out of 10. The consensus reads, incoherent, silly, unoriginal. I would say it's rather original, maybe unless you guys can name something else that's rather similar. Uh, the new guy offers up the same old teen gross-out comedy cliches. That I will agree with, but as far as uh, an unoriginal story, I disagree with. To me, it's a rather original take on it, some sort of comedy. But, yeah, the plot is kind of loose and it's bizarre. But, I mean, like I said, there's all those cameos, man. It's just cool to see all that. Metacritic, 24%, indicating generally unfavorable reviews. And I could see it being mixed. I don't know if I would unfavor it, though. I don't know if that's just nostalgia talking. But based on reviews from 23 critics, that's what it has. 
<clears throat> the soundtrack uh, has the new guy by Mystical, Simple Plan, Eve Six, Juvenile, Outcast, Green Day. I remember B2K. Even the uh, music video is on my uh, VHS tape in the beginning before the film. I remember OPM, Nine Days, the same guys who did a uh, story of a girl, uh, Vertical Horizon. I don't really know anybody else. Obviously, songs that were featured by James Brown, Cypress Hill, Saliva's uh, Click Click Boom, uh, Phil Collins in the air tonight. I mean, Offspring is obviously Damn and I Changed Again is on there. Dude, there's a lot of uh, Bowling for Soup, which I think they're actually on tour this year. That would be actually kind of cool just to say, you know, you saw them. Uh, this is the anthem by Good Charlotte. I'm not really a big fan, but everything else I don't really recognize. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's a lot of music for this film to be uh, featured in this. But uh, there you have it. There's the new guy. I don't really necessarily know what happened to DJ Qualls after this, but Elijah Dushku, uh, I think she's, I forgot what I was reading, but she's pretty well off with, uh, I think, her uh, family that she's got going on now. But uh, there you have it. There's the new guy. Moving on to the next thing. Well, before I get into Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, these are just a few things that I observed on my original tape that I had as a kid that even has my name on it. Like, you know when you would uh, let your buddies rent, not rent, excuse me, like borrow games or tapes from you and you put your name on it? Yeah, my name is on the little cardboard box on this tape, so at least I know it's mine. About halfway through, unfortunately, the tape just kind of, I don't know, it took a dump. The uh, tracking didn't work really all that well. The audio was still there because of the coax cable. But the picture just, ay, 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 at least halfway through, yeah, unfortunately it started to die. I might have to pick up a DVD copy or perhaps a VHS copy, another one later on down the road. But that being said, the Roger Rabbit cartoon in the beginning, when he's on the gurney slamming through doors, you know, it says like uh, oxygen tank, CO2. It's like advertising all these different types of things in regards to a hospital. But when he's going through uh, one of the doors, it says Burbank, which is where I noticed uh, – very quickly that I was like, this is clearly where it was animated, you know, because like Warner Brothers Studios and so forth. Uh, like I said, last time I'll watch this copy because it, it squeaks pretty also pretty dang loud in the player as well. Uh, story by Gordon or excuse me, story by Stuart Gordon and Brian Usna. I noticed that in the opening credits and they're better known for their horror films. Uh, you know, Brian Usna doing what a 1988s or 89s uh, society, the weird body horror film and Stuart Gordon, I believe. Did a, I want to say like Reanimator and a From Beyond with uh, Jeffrey Combs, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I also noticed, um, what is it, Mr. Selinsky, we are, <laughs> we are, what is it, we are the Bornsteins or whatever. And he's like, get off the grass when he's uh, all strung up, like looking for his kids. He realized that he shrunk them and they're in the grass. And it's funny because these people come over and they're like trying to get the uh, papers that the mother printed out for them. And it's in her briefcase or whatever. And I just thought it was funny. Like they introduced themselves. We're the Borsteins. Get off the grass. Like that's the first thing that he says to him. And he's like, you don't want to overwater it. It's not good for it. Just dumb. It's funny though. Still amazes me all the forced perspective, the water droplets, the B sequence in the beginning. Uh, just very, very talented uh, practical effects here. Just very, very well done. I'm very impressed with it. Uh, the subtlety in comedy when – you know, my in regards to when they're in the grass blades, when they're already shrunk down, it's pretty funny. Uh, when Amy's arguing with uh, Ronnie, she, uh, Amy's like, when my dad fixes uh, us, he says we'll be rich. And then Ronnie's like, you know, I, I like your dad. I love you. I'm kidding. You know, I really like Nick, too. He's like, a you know, a little brother to me. And <laughs> your dad's a really nice guy, blah, blah, blah. You know, just obviously clearly trying to uh, tug at her heart in order to uh, – essentially get money from her dad pretty funny i even love the stupidity when uh the uh, thompson dad 
meets up with his buddy and they do like that little fish handshake. The uh, guy comes out of the uh, mobile home and he's like, ah, and the guy's like <laughs> pretending to reel him in in his hands of fish. So stupid, but I don't know. It just, <sighs> it just cracks me up. Uh, Gloria to Donald, that, uh, <laughs> that man over there is flying. Yeah. Okay, honey. That's when, uh, right after, uh, Mr. Selinsky like sees the born scenes, I believe. And then, um, obviously the, uh, uh, the Thompsons, excuse me, uh, they're trying to go on a fishing trip, but they don't intend to, or to go because they're obviously looking for their kids. And they realize later on that, yes, they're shrunk as well with the uh, Solinskis. Uh, the fact is that they can't find their kids. I realized this on a personal level. I was like, why didn't they call the police? I haven't seen the movie in a long time. And then like literally moments after I had that inner monologue with myself, I was like, oh, they, uh, they decided to call them. Obviously, Solinsky knows. They do call the cops. My VHS copy really gets pretty bad here. Uh, it still plays, but like I said, the audio is good, but the picture's just whew, atrocious. Uh, and then uh, it's pretty funny. Shortly thereafter that, the Thompsons report uh, missing kids uh, report. They show up at the Selinskis because the uh, mother uh, filed a missing kids report. And uh, the cops show up and uh, they're like, did you file a missing report for your kids? And uh, Mr. Selinski has like a big old like, light on his head and he's like, there must be a mistake. Uh, they're in the backyard. And uh, the mom falls over because right before that, he's like, honey, I shrunk the kids. Uh, ha ha. Obviously breaking the fourth wall, talking about the title of the film. She realizes obviously his shrink ray works and she's having to suffer the fact that her kids are super tiny. Then I stopped it because the uh, tape was actually unbearable and I just, I couldn't finish it. But uh, I will certainly have to watch another copy of this, uh, given the opportunity. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, talk about it then, I guess, perhaps. But here it is. I've obviously seen this movie countless times, but I'm going to go over it regardless because I have not gone over it on my uh, show. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, 1989, PG, an hour and 33 minutes. It has a 6.4 out of 161,000 reviews. To me, I don't feel like that's enough justice for something like this. I feel like it deserves a much higher, better score. It's labeled as adventure comedy family. Hell, I'd even throw in maybe like a eh, sci-fi, sure, maybe a little bit because they have the giant ant and the scorpion. It's like <laughs> predecessor of Starship Troopers. Not, not really, just kidding. Uh, the scientist father of a teenage girl and boy accidentally shrink his and two other neighborhood teens to the size of insects. Now the teens must fight diminutive dangers as the father searches for them. Directed by Joe Johnston. Let's see what this guy did. All right, what else is he known for? Joe Johnston. Sounds familiar. Oh, The Rocketeer. I like that. Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark. He did the special effects for it. That's pretty cool. And October Sky, another classic. All right, so he's actually relatively well-known. I just didn't know the name. Written by Stuart Gordon and Brian Usna, as I stated, and Ed Naha. Starring Rick Moranis, Matt Frewer is uh, Mr. Thompson, the uh, neighbor next door, and Marcia Strassman. Marcia Strassman plays Diane Selinski, uh, Rick Moranis' wife. Christine Sutherland as Mae Thompson. Some of these iconic classic characters. Man, Amy O'Neill as Amy Selinsky. I always thought she was such a babe. I used to, oh man, such a babe when she was younger. Um, Jared Rushton, who plays the uh, little blonde kid who's also in Big with uh, Tom Hanks. Uh, same kid, super cool. Who else do we know? Kimmy Robertson as Gloria. Uh, honey, there's a man flying. That's who that is, Kimmy Robertson. Uh, who else we got here? I don't really recognize anybody else. I feel like I should, but I don't. The follow-up film has a really way worse uh, score, and I really enjoy Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. I will watch that, and we will talk about it eventually. 
Okay, the tagline is the most astonishing, innovative backyard adventure of all time. And that being said, I can probably get on board with that. And trivially, I have a feeling like I'm probably going to find a lot of cool stuff on this. So here we go. For the scene in which the miniaturized Nick Selinski drops into a bowl of cereal uh, that are Cheerios, a tank was filled with 16,000 gallons of milk-like substance made from chlorinated water, food thickener, and pigment in order to give it its coloration. The Cheerios were made from tractor inner tubes, 12 feet in diameter, coated in foam. Well done, though, man. It's incredible. Like, it's so real looking. Uh, Chevy Chase and John Candy both turned down the role of Wayne Selinski. Candy did, however, suggest Rick Moranis for the role. Interesting. This also happened when Moranis was offered Ghostbusters. So what I'm assuming John Candy... Well, even they're both not even in uh, Ghostbusters, Chevy Chase or John Candy. Uh, I don't... Whatever. I guess perhaps somebody suggested, hey, why don't you hire Rick? All right, sure, why not? In an early version of the script, there were five kids, one of which dies during the sprinkler sequence. It being a Disney film, that probably wouldn't have gone over well. So, oh, wow, there's a really cool, uh, sorry, my ADD is kicking in. There's a cool fight scene here in uh, White Phantom. I mean, it's a little corny because it's a straight to uh, VHS uh, martial arts film. And I will gladly talk about it here after these next couple films. I will talk about White Phantom. Okay. The Society for the Preservation of the English Language and Literature, Spell, awarded Honey, I Shrunk the Kids with its 1989 Dunce Cap Award, citing the title's grammatical error of using the word shrunk instead of shrank. Huh. An unnamed Disney executive responded that the incorrect usage was on purpose and directly referenced a line, a dialogue. Interesting. I don't think I ever knew that. That's crazy. Yeah, because I guess I never even thought of that. Grammatically, it would be Honey, I Shrank. That's a trip, dude. I did not know that. Okay. <clears throat> Sets and props took more than nine months to build uh, from May to June of 1989. Disney Channel Magazine article reported that 12 houses, complete with fronts and backyards, were built in addition to a 10-foot-tall oatmeal cookie made from polyurethane foam and real cream filling, 40-foot-tall urethane foam blades of grass, and a giant mechanical amp that required a dozen puppeteers to operate. The amp was constructed using latex foam core and horse hair. Very minuscule, I guess, pieces of hair because there really wasn't that much on it from what I recall. And it recreated for stop motion sequences when the children rode atop the insect. So cool. So, so cool. I know there's going to be a lot more information on it. I will read about it because the special effects are just, ah, uh, still just awesome. Released June 23rd, 1989. There you have it. Amling and Austin Everhart. This movie came out, shit, when you guys were born. That's so cool. Happy early birthday, you two. I'm definitely going to wish you guys happy birthday. Uh, filmed in Churubusco Studios, somewhere in Mexico, apparently. Okay. Atletas to Country Club, Churubusco, Coyoacan, Mexico City, Disfrito Federal, Mexico Studio. Obviously produced by uh, Disney. I didn't know it was filmed in Mexico. That's a trip. And it was probably a lot cheaper over there. It makes sense. Made on an $18 million budget, even for Disney then, sounds pretty uh, low, grossed $220 million worldwide. So it clearly was a major success. So I don't understand the score, it being six and a half. I mean, to me, it's one of those staples that just it hasn't been done, I feel like, since and deserves like a, at least a fucking eight, dude. It's a solid film. Anyway, and it's not only just cool to watch adventure-wise, it's, it's honestly funny, too. It was an unexpected box office success. According to Wikipedia, it grossed $222 million worldwide, equivalent to $524 million uh, as of last year, 2022, becoming the highest grossing live-action Disney film of all time. 
a record that it held for five years, beginning with High Blo- uh, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid in 92, as well as a television series and several theme park attractions. Animated short film, Tummy Trouble, starring Roger Rabbit. <gasps> Excuse me. Uh, man, a little too much Mexican food, sorry. Uh, Tummy Trouble, starring Roger Rabbit, was shown in theaters with the film during its box office run. Like I said, the copy that I have is all, also features that as well. Let me get some water. Sorry about that. All right. The directorial debut of Joe Johnston. That's a trip. That's pretty cool. Okay. Production. Here we go. The project was originally brought to Disney Studios by Stuart Gordon and Brian Usna. Much more known, for, like I said, for their horror uh, quality in uh, filming. White Phantom just finished, so I will gladly talk about that next. Wow, sorry. My ADD is on a roll today. Continuing with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, or Shrank. Excuse me, uh, grammatical error there, right? Gordon was hired to direct the film and Usna to produce. The film was written as Teeny Weenies by Stuart Gordon, Ed Naha, and Brian Usna. I'm glad they chose a different title because, wow. Tom Shulman was later added. Added. Yep. Added. 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 Fucking the hell's wrong with me. All right, can't speak English. Was added as a screenwriter. I'm going to go back to September. Uh, for those of you that remember that, shout out to that old episode. Well, that's not even that old, like two episodes ago. Uh, anyway, meanwhile, back in September, <laughs> Gordon originally prepped the film but had to drop out as direct uh director shortly before filming began due to an illness crazy joe johnson was brought in to replace him while penny finkelman cox replaced used as producer as the title teeny weeny seemed to appeal more to a child demographic the name was changed to grounded to appeal to a more mature audience the name was later rejected in favor of the big backyard uh honey i shrunk the kids based on a line of dialogue from the film ultimately became its title interesting that it was originally Three different titles. Wow. The film was heavily influenced by the 1950s film such as The Incredible Shrinking Man. Hang on. Give me a second. All right. I had to stop my tape. <laughs> um, casting. Here we go. Before Rick Moranis was cast as uh, Selinsky, the script was obviously mentioned for Chevy Chase in mind because of his popularity with the va- uh, vacation films. He was filming the second sequel, uh, Christmas Vacation, at the time, but was too busy to portray Wayne Selinsky. Interesting. I still don't... Chevy, uh, I don't know. I, I think he would have He would have done probably a decent job. I just... Uh, I'm glad that it was uh, Rick Moranis instead. Uh, the film needed four teenagers to play Russ. Uh, obviously, Ronnie, Amy, and Nick... Uh, what else we got here? Only He was in awe about watching his stunt doubles do his stunts. He later starred as Kevin Boggs, Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands. Oh, interesting. Robert Oliveri was uh, Nick Selinski. That's wow. I just read that. So Robert Oliveri, the guy who plays the youngest uh, kid in this with glasses, basically like a little clone of his dad, uh, Wayne Selinski. He commented that he was in awe about watching the stunt double do his stunts. So he later starred in Tim Burton's uh, Edward Scissorhands. I don't think I noticed that. That's crazy. Uh, okay, direction. Johnson was selected to direct the film as directorial debut, having been mostly working on films as an effects illustrator and art director, as I mentioned. It was filmed at the uh, back lot of the Churubusco Studios in Mexico City. Uh, Greg Fonseca was the production designer, was in charge of managing several different sets for the scenes in it. Some filming took place in the streets of Mexico City, and the scenes where Diane walks out of the mall to a payphone. A sign says Beverly Hills Mall, but it is in fact the Plaza Inn in Mexico City. That's a trip. Wow. Okay. Ooh. Okay. Here we go. Special effects. 
heavily used in the film, obviously, such as the electronically controlled ant and bees. For the most part, the production team tried to use practical effects that would work on camera. And it, it works. It still holds up, I think, even after, what, going on 33, 34 years. For the scene where Wayne lands on Thompson's pool, Moranis jumped off a flying board Okay, okay, okay. In the form of a teeter-totter on a swing set, a stuntman pushed the board, sending him flying through the air and landing on a mat. Numerous storyboards were used for the film, particularly in the sprinkler and B scenes. Scale models were also used for the B scene with miniature Russ Jr. and Nick plastic figures attached, uh, a.k.a. essentially stop motion, as I mentioned a little earlier. Like I said before, I love the idea of forced perspective when it's done right. I just think it's so cool looking. Forced perspective was used in the giant cookie scene to make it seem larger. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the cookie was what? I think it was like 10 feet tall, polyurethane rubber, and then obviously had real cream so they could eat it. Interesting. The child actors were strapped in for the scene with the uh, broom uh, when uh, Wayne Selinski up in the attic sweeps them up and puts them in the uh, trash bag. The bristles were actually pieces of foam. Of course they were. That were carved and tied to a rig system. So cool. Like, oh, man, I, love, I just love reading about that kind of stuff. Oh boy, critical response. Here we go. And then I'll probably close out this uh, particular segment of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Critical response. Rotten Tomatoes. The film has an average of 78. Okay, it could do better, but sure. Based on reviews from 36 people, apparently, with an average of 6.3, essentially the same score as what IMDb gave it. Uh, Metacritic, 63 out of 11 reviews, generally favorable, of course, because why would you hate on this? It's a great fucking film. Audiences polled cinema score gave the film an A out of an A to F scale. Perfect. New York Times, as sweet, funny, and straightforward as its title, giving it a positive review. Uh, ooh, let's see what Mr. Roger Ebert has to say. A rare negative review. Of course he did. From the Chicago Sun-Times, the special effects are all there, nicely in place, and the production values are sound, but the movie is dead in the water. What do you mean? Like, that's a little too vague for me. You said nice things, and then you're like, oh, it sucks. That's like saying, like, Oh man, I'm glad that I drank this water bottle. It saved my life, but eh, that water sucks. Like, eh, not saying that this movie saved my life, but I mean, it's a big part of my life because it was just one of those things that I had as a kid, man. The film was also mentioned in the British sitcom Only Fools and Horses, an episode titled Rodney Come Home. Man, I'm kind of bummed out with Roger Ebert on that one. Jeez. That, that blows. Like I said, I'm very hit or miss with that guy. It's like I, I agree with him maybe like a third of the time, if if at all, f in that regard. Uh, soundtrack. I mean, it had really cool music in it. Uh, its own 15 tracks by um, James Horner's soundtrack. Uh, yeah, it had really cool, like, quirky science kind of sounding adventure music. I, I really enjoyed it. And then it goes into the sequels. But I will talk about the sequel another day as well as Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves, the third installment that I think doesn't get enough love. I really love the Hot Wheels sequence in that. But anyway, classic Disney film. That was my VHS copy, and uh, I hope to pick up another copy soon and watch it and talk about it. There you have it. Uh, I had a long talk about this one. Sorry, guys. All right, moving on. All right, well, while my uh, tape rewinds, yeah, I'm rewinding uh, White Phantom. I might throw in another one while I'm uh, doing this little extra episode for you guys, a little... A little uh, extra fun for me too. Why not? Okay, I'm going to be talking about Meet the Raisins. Before I get into the California Raisins VHS that I picked up, uh, just from watching the little 28-minute special, I, I wrote some things down that I thought were pretty funny. So Meet the Raisins. Uh, the Rise to Stardom uh, features commercials of a styling wand for hair, and it says a cut above the rest. And it's clearly a fruit or veggie peeler. Uh, pretty funny stuff that they can make fun of themselves. I like that. Uh, room temperature... <laughs> 
of the young and the seedless uh, is an advertisement for a <laughs> another. So not only is it like a little rise to stardom of the actual four members of the Raisins, um, <laughs> like making their music videos and making a rise to being like an all super group. And it's mostly like Motown and uh, doo-wop songs, which is cool. They do like little like dumb commercials in between it and it cracks me up. So they even did an ad for the good and the bad and the wrinkled and making fun of the good and the bad, the ugly uh, Western. And then it breaks out into a song. Another one was a spoof of a 2001 <laughs> space odyssey called a 2000 some. Yeah, it was just called 2000 some. And it was uh, the obelisk ended up being a uh, like a karaoke machine. They put a quarter in and then it's turned into a music video with the monkeys. and They started singing and dancing. Kind of funny. Uh, a Star Trek reference, and it said Star Truck. Spock was actually Spore in reference to obviously being like a vegetable. Uh, my alien <laughs> says that the uh, surf. <laughs> my alien says, then he starts like singing a mow mow mow, like uh, the surfing bird, uh, the trash man song or whatever. Pretty funny, dumb, but it, it you know it it works. Uh, there's a guy named Cecil Top uh, who's basically supposed to be like Carrot Top, and he's like a. Uh, like a radio critic, I guess, if you will, on a little news special in between these uh, commercials and their little makeshift music videos that I guess they're doing. And uh, he's a biographer, uh, Carrot, for uh, K-Veg News. And then one of them is uh, Dan Radish here, <laughs> making fun of, uh, was it, Dan Rather uh, for the news. So that's pretty funny. Turns to, uh, <clears throat> you know, it turns to the uh, Heard It Through the Grapevine uh, song, super meta, and it's just a funny advertisement. Uh, there's... A <laughs> This one had me uh, all, pretty much almost borderline out loud cracking up because it was just so dumb. Uh, the job unemployment is due to fruits sprouting too much. Therefore, there are too many jobs. And in order to rid the problem of too many, the fruits had to be canned. Ha, 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 ha. That's funny. Come on. That's that's a solid dad joke. Oh, man. You know when a joke becomes a dad joke? When it becomes a parent. Oh, yeah. That's, that's like probably the pinnacle dad joke. Okay. okay. Anyway, back to California Raisins. Uh, a rendition of the cool jerk. It always reminds me of the Home Alone, uh, the sequence where uh, he sees Uncle Frank in the shower. Kevin, so funny. Better in my opinion, although I still liked to have heard it in this as well. It's a little uh, – they're in like Antarctica singing to like some penguins or something. It's pretty funny. Or a bunch of snowmen actually. Uh, there's a cool airplane sequence in the snow and it's back to Fresno. And then <laughs> uh, Lick Broccoli is the name of this, uh, I guess, like metal punk enthusiast – a rocker within the little uh, makeshift 28 minute music video he's a character and he's like i said a punker and why not I'll, I'll take it the airplane crashes into the show and the raisins thaw from being frozen from being in antarctica and uh right after that it's like if you want to hire like you know the california raisins to you know come work for you or come you know be at your show it says dial 976 veggie like a porn line but it reminds me of the advertisement for like uh, the 976 evil films that uh What's his name? Uh, Robert England did, uh, the guy who played Freddy Krueger. But uh, anyway, that's what I have from what I visually saw in regards to uh, California Raisins. Now I'm going to talk about it. Meet the Raisins. The original title, Meet the Raisins, the story of the California Raisins, a TV special from 1988, the year that I was born. It has an 8.4 out of only 166 uh, reviews total collectively. And I'd say regardless, well-deserved. It's probably one of those super niche things that you just don't see. It's an animation short comedy spoof, a special mockumentary showing the California Raisins' humble beginnings, rise to stardom, and fall, and then rise back again to stardom, told through the interviews with the Raisins themselves, manager Rudy Begaman, and the various colorful characters that the Raisins run into. 
featuring many great songs from the 50s to the 80s. Uh, directed by Barry Bruce. I don't know what else this guy did. Let's, let's take a look. Uh, known for A Very Herald and Kumar Christmas. He worked on the animation department on that. Um, Return to Oz art department as well. That's a trippy movie. Okay, all right. So he's well known. I, I guess I just never heard of him. All right. Starring a cast of a bunch of people that I pff, couldn't tell you. I don't know what, what else they're in. All right, moving on. Uh, the storyline, as I said, is a mockumentary. The tagline is, at last, the real scoop, the music, the magic, the fun, and find out how it all began. Okay, sure, why not? Trivially, let's take a look here. What do we got here? Among the many celebrities caricatured are Cab Calloway for Cobb Calloway, Federico Fellini as Federico Resberini, I remember that, Ed McMahon as Ed McMillan, ha ha ha, and Mick Jagger as, oh, Mick Jagger's uh, Lick Broccoli. Okay, that's funny. I said he was a punker, thrash, metalhead, whatever. I mean, that's kind of how they portrayed him in the little film, but whatever. All right. Anyway, the title, Meet the Raisins, spoofs the record album titled Meet the Beatles. Some of the Raisins biography is based on the Beatles of Liverpool and England. The most obvious point is their number of four, with the additional footnote that there was little known fifth member of the team who was dropped before they made it big. That makes sense because there was a grapefruit in this and he was supposed to be the fifth member and they basically kicked him out. Okay. All right. I get it. I get the pun now. Several men have been called the little-known fifth Beatle, Pete Best, is possibly the most famous nominee for that title. After the snowmen scene, the Raisins make their comeback on the Ed Succotash show. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, just as the Beatles were formally introduced to America on Meet the Beatles in 64. The Beatles' nickname, British Invasion, is mentioned in the cartoon. However, it refers here not to the Raisins themselves, but to Lick Broccoli's band. The Raisins themselves seem to be African-American musicians of the Motown culture, so named because it got its sponsorship from the automobile manufacturing city of Detroit, Michigan. Ray Charles and Marvin Gaye featured prominently on the Raisins soundtracks were some of the most famous Motowners. Interesting. Okay, all right. The host remarks that some are born grape, some achieve grapeness, and some have grapeness thrust upon them. That's funny. This is a line substituting grape for grape from the William Shakespeare play Twelfth Night or What You Will. In the play, the pompous oaf Malvolio adopts this line as he... As his catchphrase, excuse me, after reading it from a piece of paper that he found when he mistakenly believes it to be a love letter sent to him from Countess Olivia. Lastly, popular music icon Little Richard is represented by two of his legendary songs in this short, Tutti Frutti and Long Tall Sally. And rightly so. Okay, as I said, it's like Motown and uh, early rock and roll. Okay, so cool. All right. Uh, details. Released near my birthday, November 4th, 1988. Also known as Will Vinton Classics, Meet the Raisins. Filmed in Portland, Oregon, USA at Will Vinton Studios. Uh, Runtime, it says 22 minutes, but for some reason the tape I have says 28 minutes. I mean, I don't know what else. Those extra six minutes or four, but all right, moving on. Wikipedia, it is an 88 Claymation TV special, um, and it ran on CBS during primetime. Uh, it is their first dedicated feature, followed by a sequel in 1990, Raisins Sold Out, and then also followed up with uh, this is America Charlie Brown uh, specials around that same time. I want to say there was another Raisins after that, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, receptively gained praise for its witty family-friendly humor, as well as its impressive claymation, which was state-of-the-art at the time. I get it. Uh, award nominee, 1989 Primetime Emmy Award, a nomination for Outstanding Animated Program, and rightly so. Uh, it also looks like it says Booker T and the MG's Green Onions is on there as well. I didn't realize that. Meet the Raisins released VHS March 14th the following year in 89 
And then uh, re-released September 12, 1990 with a California Raisin plush doll. That'd be kind of cool to have. Uh, the special release DVD years later, November 15th, 2011, included in the set was the Claymation special, sold out as well, The California Raisins 2, along with 13 episodes of the animated series The California Raisins Show with four original TV ads. That might be kind of a cool piece to have. I didn't even realize they had a TV show. I remember the game on NES, that's for sure. And you know what? I will do this just for you guys. How about that? I'm going to look it up. Uh, California Raisins on price charting. As of this recording, price charting made by Capcom on the NES loose, $43. Complete in box, $90. New, $360. I'm not surprised. Uh, it's a pretty fun platformer. It's it's okay. It still holds up for what it is, but I mean, it, it's I've definitely played better, uh, better platformers, but it, it's fun. There you have it. Coming up on 10 Minutes, California Raisins, a classic VHS that I own now. I'm happy to have watched it. It's it's a fun time. I mean, show your kids if you guys manage to find it digitally or get a DVD. Sure, why not? But there you have it. Moving on. All right, good morning, guys. What's going on? I got Blind Willie McTell, the best of, from the 1920s and 30s. It is an hour long. Uh, that's what I'm listening to in the background, and I'm digging it. But, uh... I'm going to talk to you guys now about a Not Another Teen Movie, a classic comedy that might very well may just be probably my number one comedy of all time. I don't know why. I don't know if it's just nostalgia, the fact that I was 13 and saw it in theaters and was cracking up the whole time or what. I, it just This movie just means a lot to me. I have my VHS copy, and I saw it at a thrift store down the street for me. I was like, oh, man, they have a DVD copy? And I know that with the DVD, obviously, there's extra features and special bonus crap behind the scenes stuff. And that's what I did. I picked that up. And uh, I'm going to be talking to you guys about the behind the scenes stuff because I didn't necessarily watch the movie because I've seen it, I don't know, countless times. And I know it relatively like the back of my hand. So regardless, I will get into the movie after I tell you guys about the behind the scenes stuff that I saw. So one of the uh, features in the background for the uh, special effects. Uh, feature was I guess behind the scenes it's called best dressed uh, John Hughes high school the same statue and clock from breakfast club was used so that's pretty cool for the party scene house with Ferris Bueller uh, it was essentially the same house that was used in that film with Matthew Broderick uh, they built a deck above the swimming pool where Janie jumps in and you know uh, Jake's like or no what she says she's like Jake I thought I told you not to let me drink Janie that was non-alcoholic beer <laughs> so funny um, the whipped cream banana split scene, obviously making fun of varsity blues. Uh, the fact that Ron Lester was also in the film in both of these films. That's pretty funny. The guy who plays, uh, Reggie Ray, um, was actually, it was used as a shaving cream on Chris Evans. It wasn't actually whipped cream. It was a real banana as well on his ass. Uh, the props team had a hard time actually getting it to stick like that. Pretty funny. Oh man. Uh, Ron Lester, Reggie Ray's character, also trivially, I guess, in regards to this, um, came back happily to spoof himself for Varsity Blues. He was like, who else should spoof myself besides my spell, or myself? I'm not going to have anybody else play me. That's what he said, and he was like, yeah, I'll happily do it. And I thought that was pretty funny. Bruce uh, spoofs Seth Green's character from uh, Can Hardly Wait, uh, Bruce being the Asian guy, and then... Uh, being annoyingly Asian on purpose, he was intentionally trying to be a dumbass, and, well, he succeeded. It, yeah, he managed to annoy <laughs> probably a lot of viewers. Uh, Class Clown, another uh, featurette in the background, was uh, the dildo that was used in the beginning, the uh, vibrator, I guess, if you will, was actually rigged up with an air motor to shoot whipped cream uh, at, you know, Dennis Quaid and her brother and everybody else, the, uh, 
the grandparents or whatever that came into the room too. The uh, air duct gag, the uh, ventilation, was actually built from the ground up on a hydraulic lifts. Its sections were rigged on a me- mechanism and stunt doubles would fall out. They made molds of toilets of foam and fiberglass rigged to lower the toilet on cue when uh, the ceiling all fell through and the water truck with 4,000 gallons was connected to that little makeshift toilet to shoot out chocolate syrup and soup to look like poop. There you have it. I debunked uh, <laughs> that sequence because I'm even me growing up, I'm like, how did they do that? Now I know. The fall through the stairs was uh, when uh, Janie's in her dress, like coming down the stairs. Uh, there was a winch that was hydraulically uh, reeled uh, up the carpet, to reel up the carpet, excuse me, and a camera had a lock on the bottom of the stairs to be shot on cue. It was like just perfectly uh, cued in. Super cool. Uh, the women who choreographed Bring It On also choreographed the cheerleaders for this film as well, so that's pretty cool. Another featurette, uh, my freshman year, the, uh, shoot, um, before mostly, oh, uh, was Joel Gallen, who uh, worked before, mostly on MTV, before uh, creating his first film here, uh, originally titled Just Teen Movie, before it was titled, obviously, too, not another teen movie. It was originally just sketches, kind of like how the Kentucky Fried movie is done. It was supposed to be just off-the-wall randomness, didn't make any sense. Writers wanted to make it a much more modern 80s film on purpose so it wasn't to be too cliche. A parody and homage to a lot of films on purpose rather than just sketches. So that's pretty cool. It took place at Torrance High School, the same for uh, She's All That. And that's on purpose because that's also what they obviously parody is She's All That. Um... <clears throat> Mia Kirshner, Catherine's character, she was actually excited and happy to do the sloppy kiss scene with the uh, elderly woman. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. <clears throat> Everyone literally got along on set and no one fought between uh, cast and crew, uh, you know, producers, actors, actresses, wardrobe, everybody. Everybody got along. That was pretty cool to hear. It was uh, Joel's first film, as I stated. Uh, deleted scenes. There are a lot. Let me uh, take a sip here. I, I got an energy drink. It's the morning. I need some uh, caffeine. Give me a second. Oh, man, Blind Willie McTell, good stuff. Okay, deleted scenes. Randy Quaid's pulling up, excuse me, he's pulling apart a head of lettuce at the dinner table and asking the kids what cut of meat they want because he's poor and clearly drunk. (laughs) Then a strange flashback with uh, Janie explaining why she never dated anyone since she was eight. She kisses a boy goodbye, and her brother shows up within her little flashback dream, I guess, if you will. That guy is an F word, you know, obviously a gender, uh, wow, I can't speak English here, a gender derogatory uh, term for, you know, a, a homosexual. Um, I don't want to say it on air. I don't think I need to. You guys get it. Uh, and she says, I admit he's rather queer and queer, I could say, because Lewis Carroll used it when he wrote Alice in Wonderland, and it can also mean odd. So anyway, which can mean odd, as I stated. So that's the real reason why she didn't date, because the... Uh, a deleted scene conveys heartbreak at a young age. That's what uh, I was gathering. And then the dad shows up and he's like, where the hell am I? <laughs> am I drunk? <laughs> he's just walking through her dream drinking. So stupid. Oh, boy. Crack me up because it was just so dumb. All right. Another scene. In a barbecue sequence, There, the guys are at a barbecue and their, uh, their parents are there as well. It's a bunch of the football players. They're supposed to uh, knock beer cans off each other's head. And uh, Jake's dad... Uh, gradually turns, you know, a beer can into like a pyramid of beer cans and it's a keg. And then he's holding his mom over his head and the dad's like, it's all right, son, just keep trying, you know, and he keeps missing and he keeps hitting everybody else with the football instead. So stupid. All right. Another scene. 
When Janie gets a makeover, Catherine puts a bag on her head, and it looks kind of like the town that dreaded sundown bag meets uh, Jason, or excuse me, Friday the 13th Part 2, where Jason has that bag on his head. It's probably on purpose to look like that. Uh, Catherine then unbuttons Janie's shirt and gives her a raspberry. You know, the... Yeah, pretty funny. And then cue the normal scene where she's like, yep, I did it. You know, like, uh, I made her over pretty much. She just, what, took off her glasses and undid her uh, ponytail. They should have left that scene, and I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, next uh, deleted scene, a sequence in class with the elderly woman in the film disguised uh, as obviously a teenager writes a note to the teacher that at the football game she will be waiting on the 50-yard line for her first kiss from him because obviously she's only kissed the uh, girl. After the game, it's a monologue that she's doing and she winks – or excuse me, and the teacher winks at her. Pretty funny. Obviously, it's in her own head. And uh, he moves his ass around while erasing the chalkboard. And she looks down at her notebook and she – scribbles <laughs> and it doesn't make any sense she's like ah shit it just looks like a giant like scribble it doesn't make any sense they should have kept that in it was dumb and it was just subtle it was funny uh another scene how many times i'm not going to uh princeton dad when uh obviously jake's arguing with his dad his dad keeps setting up like princeton banners in the house <laughs> try it the dad's like try it for four years and if you don't like it I, you can get a job at my firm <laughs> so dumb Oh, man, that scene where Chris Evans, Jake's character, adds a southern accent. You know, I don't want your life. Why did I sound Australian? Hang on. Let's retry that. I didn't mean to do that. I don't want your laugh. I don't want your wife. Okay, there we go. That's much better. Uh, Obviously, the mom for the house, uh, Beverly is her name. Uh, She comes in, and I remember the dad's like, I got a rebound for you because I know what happened with you and Priscilla. And... uh, the mom comes in and she adds this line. It's pretty funny. She's like, do you want top or bottom deer? I, I, it's probably better that they left that aspect out of the film, but I thought it was pretty funny regardless. I was cracking up because I was just like, wow, how vulgar between a mom and a, a son. So ridiculous. All right. Different scene. Uh, Ricky, uh, Janie's nerd stalker character friend, uh, can't get into the party. He's ringing the doorbell consistently. And Janie's brother about to talk to Amanda Becker, um, there's a line of geeks in, uh, he doesn't realize that he's about to give Amanda the, um, letter and like a geek taps him on the shoulder and he's like, Hey, get to the back of the line, you know? And there's like, I don't know, a hundred geeks like waiting for, to take pictures with her and get a hand job. Apparently I, I think they could have left that scene in. It was pretty funny. Uh, anyway, different scene. Janie drunk at Preston's party falls off the table, then does ballet in the living room. So this scene particularly takes place instead of her jumping off the balcony, uh, into the pool. It's like the same when obviously Jake shows up and tells her not to drink the non-alcoholic beer and jump. Uh, I, I thought it was pretty funny. It was dumb, but I'm, I guess I'm glad they left the original and took this one out. Another scene. Janie's brother at the party goes up the stairs and opens up the door and interrupts a meta fourth wall uh, pillow fight. There are two girls in their underwear and one says, why are we doing this? You know, they're giggling in their underwear and having a pillow fight. And then the other girl's like, I don't know. It actually never happens in real life. And then they just keep swinging at each other and laughing. Ricky shows up, Janie's nerd uh, stalker, with a ladder outside the window like the guy in uh, Clarissa Explains It All, basically, who goes into Melissa Joan Hart's room. Uh, He's outside the window and gets hit with a pillow in the face and then falls back. I think they could have left that scene in. I mean, it wasn't vulgar. No one's nude. No one's cursing. I mean, it was was funny. It did its job. Uh, Another scene, Janie dancing in her room with a hairbrush, using it as like a microphone. Uh, and you know, she's singing like, Oh, Jake could be the one. And her brother hits her with the door when he comes in 
and she goes flying. You can clearly tell it's a dummy. I, I liked this one because it was just so dumb. They could have kept that one in. And he's just like, I just wanted to say goodnight, sis, and then close the door, like, laughing. So stupid. I thought it was great, though. Okay. I got I got a little more. A couple more scenes. Uh, Randy. <laughs> this is one of my favorite. Randy Quaid, uh, the dad of Janie and her uh, little brother, uh, during... He's driving in well, what we think is the rain. Hear me out with the kids and the brother giving each other uh, the brother and the sister giving each other shit. Uh, he's giving Janie especially a hard time. And, uh, and what does he say to her? He's like, you want Jake to finger blast you, don't you? You've changed for him. <laughs> you don't smell anymore, neither. And the dad's like, <laughs> it's true. And then uh, the brother says, just spread your legs for him already. And then she fights back with uh, this retort. She says with harsh reality. You will never get any, and it's the only reason why, uh, you know, dad made these uh, particular uh, traits in place of me because he knew that you would never get any. And then uh, the dad's like, well, yeah, that's also true. And then Janie says, daddy, we're still in the driveway. And I think they should have kept that one in, and it's pretty funny because then you see them pan out from the car, and the sprinklers are going off, and then you even hear uh, – you even hear the dad say again, he's like, yep, yeah, it's true. Like, they're clearly not going anywhere. He's just pantomiming driving while the sprinklers are hitting the car. So dumb. Love it. They should have kept it. Another scene. The elderly woman on the football field wants the teacher, uh, you know, for him to come down during the halftime show and then uh, make out with her or whatever on the uh, field. And uh, he doesn't show up. Uh, however, he's in the stands after she announces. And then uh, he gets up. And he starts to head down to the field, and then she gets ran over by a bunch of the football players. He walks back up to the bleachers, and that's like the end of the scene. It doesn't make any sense. It was funny. I think they could have kept it. Uh, the scene where the blonde guy fake whispers in Janie's ear about the uh, bet that they had. It had an extended scene where Reggie Ray's uh, gurney that he's in, he flies out of the ambulance, and uh, he loses his head. And the blonde guy's like, oh, no, Reggie. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, I suppose I'm probably glad they left that out because it really didn't make any sense. Uh, three more scenes, then I will actually get to the film. The scene where they do the song at the prom tonight before it pans into a uh, a fall song. It stops and Jake is actually on a trash can on the beach. The music cuts out and he's looking at everybody around him. And he's like, what do you guys want? It doesn't make any sense. Like, So they were basically obviously pandering and uh, making fun of uh, like Grease uh, songs pretty much, which I think is pretty funny. Uh, it fades back into the song. They added that the uh, elderly lady in the song, can you believe I've never been kissed by a guy that is like, you know, because uh, obviously she's been kissed by a uh, Catherine's character. They took that aspect out. And then Reggie Ray sings incoherently in a coma in the hospital. It doesn't make any sense. And then I think even the nurse tries to sing for him. And then she doesn't make any sense either. I'm like, why does she not make any sense? It makes perfect sense that Reggie doesn't because he's in a coma, but he has like, whatever. And then the normal song just pans back in, you know, at the prom tonight, did, did, did. Yeah, I, I think they could have left the Reggie Ray thing. And I, it was so dumb. It was great. <clears throat> uh, anyway, two more scenes. So the guy who plays the Asian guy meets up with Ariola, the uh, foreign exchange student who's pretty much naked in the entire film. He uh, nudges a girl at prom and she says, for now, I can give you sucky sucky. And before that, <laughs> the sensitive friend's talking to him and he's just like, hey, man want to go cross streams and then like he clearly turns around runs into areola and she's like i'll give you sucky sucky and then she just grabs him and then they like leave the prom so funny i think they could have left that in it was just so bizarre it made me laugh though last scene a parody of 16 candles at the end after the ending airport sequence 
where uh, Molly Ringwald's there and she's like, I'm fucking teenagers or whatever. Uh, Janie says that she's going to go to art school. Jake is going to school in the fall. They're in uh, Janie's house. And as it is, you know, it falling apart, a train passes by and the house literally even more so falls apart and they fall through the floor into the scenes. I'm assuming that's how it was going to end. And I think they could have added it in or at least edited that portion of the film and just kind of went with it. But anyway, there you have it. There's 15 minutes of behind the scenes stuff. Now I'm actually going to talk about not another teen movie. 2001 rated R an hour and 21 minutes has a 5.7 out of 110,000 reviews on IMDb. It is a comedy send-up of all the teen movies that have accumulated in the past two decades, and rightly so. Like I said, it's the first film by Joel Gallen. Let me see what else he did other than not another teen movie. I don't really know him for anything else. Uh, Zoolander producer. Okay, all right, right on. Yeah, same year. Okay, I could have sworn Zoolander was actually before that. Starring Kyler Lay, Jamie Presley, and Chris Evans. Obviously, Chris Evans going off and doing Fantastic Four, Captain America, Jamie Presley. She's been in a lot. I haven't really seen Kyler Lay in anything else or Mia Kirshner. Eric Christian Olsen did, uh, what was it, Beer Fest, um, Fired Up. He was in a lot of, like, you know, little teen quirky comedies here and there. Looks like Reggie Ray uh, lost some weight, a.k.a. Ron Lester. Cody McMaines uh, plays Mitch, which is uh, Janie's younger brother. I'm sure he's been in stuff, too. He looks familiar. Lacey Chabert, play, or Chaber, however you pronounce it, played Amanda Becker. I'm not sure. Sam Levine, the guy who plays uh, Bruce, he's been in a lot, too. Ed Lauder, the coach, he's actually been in a lot as well. You're still lucky you're on the goddamn team, goddammit. You're in goddamn uniform. <laughs> oh, my God. So ridiculous. Uh, Paul Gleason, a.k.a. Richard Vernon in this, you know, plays the principal not only in this, but as well as in uh, Matthew Broderick's uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Mr. T obviously is in this as well from the A-Team, the wise janitor. Very short part in this, but still pretty funny nonetheless. Ah, boy. Uh, The tagline, the team mother of all movies, and rightly so, rated R for crude sexual haunt, uh, haunt-ent. Yeah, haunt-ent. Well, that might as well be a fucking word now, haunt-ent. I'm keeping that one. I'm going to go back to September and enjoy that. Rated R for strong crude sexual content and humor, language, and sub-drug content. Haunt-ent. I like that. I'm keeping that. Feature film debut of Chris Evans, trivially, and rightly so, I believe that. He's only been acting for then, give or take, like, you know, 20 years, you know, relatively. The studio was unhappy with the original ending of the film, prompting the makers of the film to seek Molly Ringwald's help. And I'm glad they put her in, because it, it, it puts that meta homage nod to everything, like, just perfectly and rightly so. In Spain and Greece, the movie was released under the title, This Is Not Another Dumb American Movie. That's hilarious. I would love to just own a poster that says that. That's hilarious. Let me get a sip. Hang on. Losing my friggin' voice here after, you know, two days in a row recording. Here we go. The filmmakers couldn't get the rights to use the footage from She's All That, so they shot the scene with two different people on the library set and made the TV blurry so you couldn't tell. Interesting. Visual pun. When Ariola is singing topless, of course, during the prom tonight, the animated birds that appear outside her window are blue tits. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Uh... Cameo, Melissa Joan Hart, girl at the party who instructs the slow clap guy on the proper timing of his shtick. The slow clap guy, for those of you that don't know, is actually comedian Kyle Cease. And he is pretty funny. He was on a premium blend on Comedy Central back in the day. All right, here we go. Alternate versions. The U.S. TV version blurs Ariola's nudity. Of course it does because it's made for TV. Uh, connections. Featured in Best Movies Ever, Proms, 2007. Interesting. All right, what else we got here? Released December 14th, 2001. I had no idea that I actually watched it around uh, Christmas, but I definitely remember seeing this in theaters for sure. Filmed in Monrovia High School in Monrovia, California. 
and I believe it. Produced by Columbia and uh, Neil H. Moritz Productions. Box office, $15 million budget, and it grossed $66 million worldwide. Uh, I believe it, because it, like I said, it's just, it honestly just has everything. Like, it accomplished so much, and then yet it still only has a 5.7 out of 110,000 reviews, whatever. Let's see what Wiki has to say. Teen parody film, directed by Joel Gallen, his first film, as I stated, featuring a star-studded cast. Uh, what else we got here? Scrolling down. Come on, come on, come on. There we go. Par- oh, parodies here. It parodies Grease, Airplane. I already kind of knew that. Fast Times, Ridgemont, Porky's, Risky Business, uh, The Karate Kid, Repo Man. Okay, nice. I like that one. 16 Candles, obviously. Better Off Dead. The Breakfast Club, Just One of the Guys. Uh, okay. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Pretty in Pink. Uh, License to Drive with Corey Feldman, Corey Haim. Heather's, a, a classic one with uh, Winona Ryder. Naked Gun, obviously. Yes, I, I remember that reference. Okay. Jay's Confused. Rudy, the football film. Yep, that makes sense because that's the whole uh, wise janitor throwing the football thing. Clueless, Independence Day, Can't Hardly Wait, The Faculty, Pleasantville. That one is an underrated weird film, in my opinion, with uh, Jeff Daniels and Tobey Maguire. Ten Things I Hate About You, that's obvious. American Beauty, American Pie, of course. Cruel Intentions, of course, because that's what Catherine's uh, little uniform was. Uh, Mia, what was her name? Yeah, Mia uh, Kirshner, her outfit in the film. Uh, Detroit Rock City, that's obvious. Deuce Bigelow, Drop Dead Gorgeous, Jawbreaker, of course. Never Been Kissed, which is obviously the elderly woman who disguises herself as a teenager. That's that reference. She's all that with uh, Janie and Jake. Superstar, classic. Um, Varsity Blues, obviously, because Ron Lester's in this. Almost Famous, Bring It On, Dude Where's My Car, Road Trip, Unbreakable, the M. Night Shyamalan film. Wow, I didn't realize it parodies all of that. I mean, I knew maybe a handful of them, but not all of that. Uh, Star-studded musical entourage in this as well. Marilyn Manson's Tainted Love, Smashing Pumpkins, uh, System of a Down, Saliva, Goldfinger. Obviously, when they're playing football, I definitely remember that scene. Good Charlotte. Uh, at the prom muse i am not a muse fan at all Ugh, get me out of here no thanks all right <clears throat> release not another team movie open theatrically december 14 2001 and then region one dvd april 30 2002 the following year with an unrated extended version on july 26 2005 the cut runs 10 minutes longer than the original and adds a number of deleted alternate and extended scenes i'm assuming that's what i have because like i said i it was a lot i, I watched a lot about it like i said i didn't re-watch the film only because i've seen it a million times perhaps i will and maybe I'll just shoot from the hip and talk about it rather than looking up information. Box office, $12.6 million according to IMDb, or excuse me, according to Wikipedia as far as the budget goes. Uh, or excuse me, that's what it grossed. 38 domestically, 28 internationally. Worldwide, 66 million. Okay, no, that's right. That's right. It's the same uh, exact score. Okay. Lastly, critical response. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 28% out of 96 reviews. Boo, you guys can fuck off. With an average of 4 out of 10. <clears throat> Metacritic. 32 out of 100. Fuck off. Like, what do you what do you guys want? Fuck you. This is like one of my favorite movies of all time. You guys can go to hell. Uh, cinema score, a C plus out on A to F scale. Eh, fine, whatever. I guess maybe what compared to other classic comedies. Uh, Roger Ebert, Chicago, sometimes gives the film two stars out of four. He admitted laughing a few times, but not as much as he did for the American Pie or Scary Movie. Ebert also criticized the scatological humor. He urged audiences not to waste their time on the film when in the month of December 2001, there were 21 other promising films to choose from. He didn't like the poop humor. Well, just ignore that then. Whatever. Come on, Roger. Come on, Roger. Rest in peace. Anyway, what else we got here? Yep, that's it. All right, there you have it. I had a lot to say about None Other Teen Movie because it holds a special place in my heart. I love this film. 
I always will. It means a lot to me. And I remember going to the theaters and seeing it with my neighbor and uh, cohort and baseball player that I used to play with, my buddy uh, Justin LeBlanc. So <sighs> if you're still out there, bud, you know, I, I miss you. It's been a long, long time since I've had words with you. But I uh, hope you're doing well and uh, enjoy the rest of the show, guys. Moving on. Thank you. All right, this little sequence about the film uh, White Phantom that I was watching in the background and uh, recording to. I picked this up at a Sabres, uh, I don't know, a couple days ago for a dollar. I was just like, dude, that looks like a really corny martial arts film. And it was. And it's actually a sequel to The Sakura Warriors, which is technically considered by most who watch uh, straight-to-video martial arts films a uh, far superior film. But uh, whatever information I can find on this, which isn't much, I will talk about. White Phantom, 1987, VHS copy, hour and 29 minutes. It is unrated. It is an action film. A group of camouflaged ninja steals a case of plutonium from a transport vehicle. And you really don't even see the White Phantom until like the last maybe, I don't know, like 20 minutes. Yeah, there's martial arts stuff here and there going on, but it's rather corny. It has a 3.7 out of uh, 211 views. That's it. Uh, I'm assuming there's probably more, but just no one's really registered, I guess, as a reviewer. Directed by Dusty Nelson. Let's see what else he did. I really don't know. Written by Chris Gallagher. Dusty Nelson, obviously doing the Sakura Killers, which is, like I said, a far superior film before this. Uh, Effects, he worked on as director. That is the uh, Tom Savini film, if I'm not mistaken, unless it just happens to be uh, a similar, or excuse me, the same name for a different film, which might be. But I want to say that film came out in 1979, and I've seen it. It's okay. It's all right. You know what? I'm going to take a look at this real quick and make sure if that's what that is. Uh, yep, yep, that's exactly what that is. The horror film effects. He worked on that one with uh, Savini. That's a trip. Yeah, okay. I didn't realize. So Dusty Nelson. Okay, bravo. That's cool that they actually worked together. I didn't realize it was the same film. I was just like, oh, maybe it's the same name, just different film. Okay, all right. Back to White Phantom. Written by Chris Gallagher, David Hamilton, and Dusty Nelson, as well as obviously directing uh, Dusty Nelson. Starring Jay Roberts Jr., uh, Bo Svensson. I don't really, yeah, I don't recognize anybody else. Yeah, nobody, there's no pictures of anybody. Super probably low-budget film. Storyline, a group of camouflaged ninjas steal plutonium from a transport vehicle. That's another <laughs> storyline tag, I guess, for this. Uh, trivially, let's take a look. Probably nothing too crazy. One, one blurb for trivia, and that's it. Wow. The film appears to be the unofficial sequel to the earlier ninja movie Sakura Killers or it is at least set in the same universe. Both films feature the eponymous Sakura organization. Both feature ninjas, and the voice of Gregory Snegoff can be heard in both films as Master Sugiyama in Sakura Killers and Sonata, the Sakura father in White Phantom. Okay, yeah, there's really not much on this film. Uh, I will keep going, I guess, and find as much as I can. Do we have a budget here? Okay, here we go. Released September 1st, 1987. Uh, language, English and Mandarin, also known as El Fantasma Blanco. That's Spanish, actually. So, interesting. Filmed in Taiwan, uh, produced by Bonaire and Overseas Film Group. Uh, that's all I got on IMDb. Like I said, very, very small kind of community for this film. Nothing really all that special. Uh, I got a little more on uh, Letterboxd. I couldn't find anything on Wikipedia. There's nothing. But it is free also on Tubi. I just found that out. 
A uh, group of camouflage ninjas stealing a small case of plutonium from a transport vehicle in broad daylight in California back in his office in Sanji, Taiwan. The Colonel, Bo Svensson's character, receives a word of the heist and top suspect is the Sakura family, selected for the job of locating the stolen nuke materials in Mylin. Paige Leong, the uh, actress, an informant and dancer. There's uh, like super cool like synth rock, I guess, for the time, you know, and there's a bunch of... Taiwan like strip clubby type stuff in this and it's just it's very much so a sign of the times uh, Willie J Roberts jr. A drunken American playboy who is prone to playing the harmonica teams up with my Lin will also just happen to be the white ninja uh, There's literally no uh, motto or slang or not slang. Excuse me a slogan for this It just says white phantom on the cover of it enemy of darkness, huh? That doesn't say that anywhere as far as like white phantom enemy of darkness the name of the film Maybe that's the slogan, I guess. I don't know. Whatever. It's super corny. It's like, I don't know. I, I like it for what it is. It's dumb. But I mean, I like this crap, though, too. Oh, boy. There you have it. Yeah, there's literally next to nothing else I could find on this film. Uh, if you want to watch it, like I said, it's free on Tubi or go find yourself a dollar copy VHS like I did. <laughs> Moving on to the next thing. what's going on guys all right i got two more films to get through this episode yeah i had a lot to talk about and a lot that i watched and well here it is uh before i get into creep 2014 i just saw on uh, msn microsoft it, there was a, a 25 best ps2 games of all time list i haven't looked at it <clears throat> excuse me i'm gonna take a sip of my energy drink here ah delicious celsius love that stuff sponsored by celsius no i'm just kidding not really um <laughs> that would be nice shit um, <clears throat> I have not looked through this list. I'm just uh, reacting and uh, I will give you my responses. Number 25, SOCOM 2 U.S. Navy SEALs. Uh, I could see it being relatively important. Yes, uh, absolutely. With its LAN option and uh, using the uh, microphone and so forth to uh, convey what you needed to to your uh, AI and all that. Yeah, it's it's an important game. Okay. Number 24, OutRun, Coast to Coast. OutRun was, uh, you know, obviously in the Sega arcades. It's part of the AM2 uh, arcade machine driving game. Featuring for uh, Ferraris and it has the coast to coast mode and all that. Um, I remember Outrun also obviously being a, what a Master System a Genesis if I'm not mistaken, um, as well as I don't know if it was Saturn, but I know it was also on Dreamcast. But uh, the fact that it made it to PS2, cool man. Yeah, Outrun Outruns it's basically like Taxi or uh, what is it Crazy Taxi meets like uh, Cruising USA kind of per se. Right, what else we got here? Gradius 5. Gradius 5 is awesome. Konami developed a game originally on NES. Uh, it's a PS2 uh, retail shoot-em-up developed by Treasure in today's market. Treasure did a lot. Um, what, Mischief Makers and uh, I think Bangayo, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, Gunstar Heroes. They made a lot of cool games. Treasure's very, very uh, underrated. Um, well, maybe, probably maybe overrated now, but at the time it was definitely an underrated publisher. But moving on, Gradius, well-deserved. Gradius 5. 22, Virtual Fighter 4. I am not really a fighting game fan, so I'm just going to move on. Cool that it made this list. Sorry. Not a fighting game guy, unless it's uh, Super Smash. Dragon Quest 8. I haven't played any of the Dragon Quests. I hear this one's really good, and I hear it's really long. It's a befitting quintessential JRPG series from Akira Toriyama, the same guy who did uh, Dragon Ball Z as well as uh, Chrono Trigger's artwork. Um, I would love to get into these games. I just haven't gotten around to them yet. I saw that the Switch has uh, a physical copy of Dragon Quest 1, 2, and 3. That might be a cool thing to own. Because, I mean, otherwise you can buy them digitally. But I'm like, uh, I actually, I might have them emulated on my NES Classic. I'm not sure. 20 is Gran Turismo 4. No thanks. I will pass. I mean, bravo that it made this list. Sure, why not? 
Tony Hawk's Underground, number 19. And it looks like they're advertising it with uh, Ben Franklin skateboarding. That's pretty cool. Uh, done by Neversoft and Activision. I mean, it's a classic staple. I can talk for hours on Tony Hawk. So bravo that it made number 19 to me. I feel like it deserves a higher number, maybe like top five. But okay, sure. What do we got here? 18, Kingdom Hearts. I'm surprised that this is so low. I can talk for hours once again about Kingdom Hearts as well. Uh, done by uh, Square in 2002. It deserves to be higher. But anyway. 17, Ratchet & Clank, Up Your Arsenal, which is actually the third installment of the original trilogy of Ratchet & Clank. I have the HD remake on a PS3. Hope to get into that here. Uh, actually, uh, I have played, I think, the first one, and I have played the PS4 remake of the first one as well. Anyway, Ratchet & Clank, Up Your Arsenal, number 17, uh, done by Insomniac. Uh, well, well-deserved to be on this list. 16, Katamari Damacy. I feel like this one went under the radar for a long time. You basically are just this weird green anime-looking type character it's very japanese and you're moving trash around and trying to defeat these like puzzles in order to just keep moving on to the next level with moving trash and just junk around it's it's a lot of fun a very addicting uh kind of like monkey ball but instead of trying to get through a course uh i guess on the ledge if you will uh you have to just roll trash and get through a course it's a lot of fun 15 ssx tricky i wouldn't don't even know if i would put that on this list but it's a fun snowboarding game nonetheless i like the ssx on tour that's my favorite i had it on gamecube i have it now on the original xbox amplitude i don't even i've heard of it never played it moving on whatever i don't know it okami i hear great things about it never played it on ps2 it looks beautiful i have it on nintendo ds as i've stated before i hope to maybe find this someday and get into it uh number 12 jack and daxter wow okay higher than ratchet and clank i would put Ratchet and Clank higher personally, but yeah, Jack and Dexter's fun. The precursor legacy, the first game done by Naughty Dog, same guys behind uh, Uncharted and Crash Bandicoot. Beyond Good and Evil, man, ah, I'm so glad that I have it. I can't wait to get back into it. Done by Ubisoft, same guys who do uh, the Rayman series. That's so cool. And uh, obviously Far Cry, as I mentioned in my uh, previous episode with a buddy. Uh, Burnout 3 Takedown, well-deserved to be on this list. I don't know if I'd put it at top 10, but sure. It's a great game. Devil May Cry, I could see that. Done by Capcom 2001, you play as Dante. There's, you know, multiple different games, and you play them, I believe, out of order, if I'm not mistaken. It's like 4-3-1-2 or something like that, or 4-1-3-2, something like that. It's weird. Or it might be 3, I think, might be the first one. doesn't matter. Moving on. Devil May Cry, number 9. Number 8, ICO. Hear great things about it. Like I said, I have the HD remake with uh, this and Shadow Colossus on my uh, PS3. Hope to get into this one uh, here pretty soon, too. Final Fantasy X. Yep, deserves to be in the top 10 for sure. Done by Square, 2001. It just you know, playing as Titus or Titus, however you pronounce it, and uh, attacked by uh, Sin in the city of Zanarkan uh, in the world of Spira, Spyro, however you want to pronounce it. It's one of those just incredibly evolutionary gameplay experiences for the Final Fantasy series. Number seven, moving on. What do we got here? Number six, God of War. Okay, I would be, yeah, okay. At least I'm glad it's in the top 10. Uh, released 2005 as Kratos. You know, God of War, number six. Okay, cool. Silent Hill 2. Hear great things. I always hear the second one's the best one. Done by Team Silent, released in 2001. It's expensive now. Uh, published by Konami, number five, Silent Hill 2. Love to play it. Would love to. Resident Evil 4, actually, on PS2. Uh, done by Capcom, 2005. Obviously, it being released originally on uh, GameCube. That is the version that I played. And to me, that is the definitive way to play it, I suppose. Maybe I'm just a gatekeeper in that regard. I don't know. Number three, Shadow of the Colossus. I don't know if I'd put it that high. It's a good game. It is. It is. Uh, done by Team Ico, 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 however you want to pronounce it. The same guys behind who obviously did the game uh, ICO, released 2005. This is a great game. I got all the way up to the last boss, and for some reason I just I stopped playing. I shouldn't have. I should have kept playing. I really enjoyed that game. 
Metal Gear Solid 3, Snake Eater, number two, done by Konami. I always hear one and three are the best ones to play. Released 2004. I'm, I'm glad that it made this list, and it'll probably make Austin very happy that it made number two. However, it wasn't his number one. And number one is, I don't know, I'm going to guess. It's probably going to be like Tekken or something. Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. Uh, I, I get it. It was a huge, huge, huge deal. I'm just not a GTA fan. All right, there you have it. Done by Rockstar, of course. All right, we're going to be talking about Creep 2014. Rated R, hour and 17 minutes. It's a 6.3 out of 61,000 reviews. Um, it is a horror thriller. A young videographer answers an online ad for a one-day job in a remote town to record the last messages of a dying man. When he notices the man's odd behavior, he starts to question his intentions. It just gives you that weird ambiance, just that weird creepy feeling. It's, it's unsettling for sure. Directed by Patrick Bryce. Let's see what else he did. I really don't know if he did anything at all. Uh, oh, he's the guy who plays the... <laughs> the the guy who unfortunately meets his demise in this film. Uh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I had no idea that was him. Uh, oh, dude, there's a, a Creep 2? Oh, man. Now, now that I know there's a Creep 2, I'm going to have to watch it. Because I enjoyed this. Uh, I'm normally not a fan of like stock footage in the way that it's shaky. But it's not that shaky compared to like other films that I've watched. Uh, starring Katie Asselton, Patrick Bryce, and uh, Mark Duplass. Mark Duplass, I believe, is the... Uh, yep, he plays Joseph, the guy from uh, The League. That show's so funny. Uh, you know, Katie Asselton does the voice of Angela, who actually ends up being Joseph's brother. And Patrick Bryce is led to believe that uh, Joseph and uh, Angela are to be wed. And uh, she's like, no, I'm his brother. You should get out of the house. He's crazy kind of thing. So, I mean, everything just starts to unfold. I don't really want to give it away. It, it was, it's worth a watch, I'd say. It's only an hour and 17 minutes. You know, watch it any which way you can. I'm going to have to watch Creep 2. And it looks like it has the same rating, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, actually, it has a, a, a 0.1 better, actually, rating. So, yeah, I'm going to have to find that one. I, I liked that. Uh, it was interesting. So here's a little bit more, I guess, synopsis of the storyline. A videographer answers an advertisement uh, on Craigslist for a one-day job in a remote mountain town to video the last messages of a dying man. The job takes a strange turn when the uh, last message gets darker and darker. The videographer continues to see through the job, but when it's time to leave, he is unable to find his keys. He receives a strange phone call finds that his client is not all that he initially seems to be. Like I said, and it keeps unfolding from there. Uh, rated R for violence and language. Let me take a look at trivia. It, it's probably not, nothing special because it's very, very low budget. There's nothing really too crazy that, uh, as far as like, oh my gosh, those special effects were cool. Hang on, let me get a sip here. It was based on a series of conversations trivially between Patrick Bryce and Mark Duplass. So they actually know each other. That's pretty cool. Most of it was actually improvised and well done then. It works. This led a lot of scenes being shot, and as a result, the footage was actually screened in front of their peers. Eventually pushed the psychological black comedy into a psychological horror film. Very much so. There's definitely a defining line when he puts on the uh, peach fuzz, like, wolf mask. You're just like, okay, this took a turn for the worst. This was eventually pushed the psychological black comedy into the psychological horror. Taking the advice of their friends, there is also footage of at least three other alternate endings. I would like to see those just out of curiosity. They filmed this in a week with only a five-page outline. Wow, filmed in seven days. It's crazy. Like The Ring. Seven days. <laughs> the first of a trilogy of Creep films. There's a trilogy? Oh, my gosh. Creep 2 released October 24, 2017, while the third installation in the franchise is in development. Okay, I got to find I gotta find the second one, man. I, wow. I, okay, cool. It's also uh, improvised, trivially, as I stated, the entire film. The film's Bible was only bare bones, driving a car while videotaping a dialogue of the trip. All of it improvised. Wow, that's, that's crazy. They managed to do a decent job with just improvisation. The Peach Fuzz mask is used in form novelties, uh, Night Wolf mask. Interesting. Okay. 
Uh, the rest of the uh, trivia is uh, spoilers. I don't really want to get into spoilers. I advise those of you who listen to my show, watch it for your own, uh, you know, I guess, interest and make up your own uh, surmise from there, I suppose. Released June 23rd, 2015. Filmed in Crestline, California, a.k.a. Uh, it looks like it's up in a Gregory Lake or a, what do you want to call it? A, like Lake Arrowhead, Big Bear area. Uh, produced by Blumhouse and Duplass, obviously being the uh, director himself. Uh, do I have any? I have nothing as far as a budget here, what it was, uh, what it grossed. Okay. All right. Not to be confused with Creep 2004. Thank you, Wikipedia, for that. Uh, the film premiered March 8th, 2014 at South by Southwest, released video on demand, The Orchard prior to international release via Netflix 2015. It received positive reviews from critics. Rotten Tomatoes has an approval rating of 90%. Wow. A sequel released in 2017 as I keep reading and I'm like, wow, where the hell am I? I got to watch this with a third one in uh, development with a future release uh, coming soon. Uh, cast related. Duplass's real life spouse, Katie Asselton, makes an uncredited appearance as the voice of Angela. So that's interesting that he was actually talking to his real life wife. Uh, production wise, the film story inspired by character driven dramas here at the heart. Uh, my dinner with Andre, Misery and Fatal Attraction. It makes perfect sense. It's a myriad of strange Craigslist experiences that he's had over the years. Bryce, uh, playing Joseph and Duplass, um, originally began working on Creep under the working title Peach Fuzz after the wolf mask owned by Duplass's character, but chose to rename the film as the title's relevance came later into the movie's plot. They did not want viewers to spend the first half hour trying to figure out why the movie is called Peach Fuzz. <laughs> That's funny. And not pay attention to the very intricate details. The two built the movie from a series of conversations they had with one another and decided to refine Creep while they were uh, filming, which enabled them to film and screen portions of the film to see what would work and what wouldn't work on camera. As a result, the film had multiple alternate endings and scenarios. Duplass stated that there were 10 to 12 permutations of each scene. Wow. I would like to see some sort of alternate cuts of all that. Uh, the creative process for his character, Joseph Duplass, explains, we were interested in the psychological profile of this very strange individual. We were very interested in how you meet people and don't quite understand what's up, but you begin to... Uh, develop signs of that particular individual. For us, that was intense eye contact, lack of personal space, oversharing, maybe a little bit too much love here and there. For me, there's something wrong with both of these guys deeply. This concept, who is the creep in this scenario? That's very true. They're both rather strange. You start to almost feel for uh, the guy who ends up being the killer, and then you start to like lose interest in the guy who's like following. He's like, why am I doing all this for this guy who ends up being... It's so weird. You start to... It's basically just two people in this film, and it, I don't know, it just works. It's weird. Received a worldwide premiere at the Southwest Festival 2014. What else we got here? Home Media, released on DVD April 5th, 2016 from Sony Pictures Entertainment. Rotten Tomatoes, 90%, as I stated. Hollywood Reporter, IndieWire, giving it positive reviews. It had its flaws, but mostly worked in its favor. Variety remarked that it could have been more effective if Duplass's performance were a shade more ambiguous and the audience had a chance to at least fleetingly believe joseph might be telling the truth but despite the blatancy of the character's ulterior motives duplass scores a considerable impact by making the most of the aforementioned plot twist shock till you drop lastly stating the creep might work for those that don't regularly uh, digest horror films but for the hardened fan this is a film that spins its wheels all too often and feels like an exercise in self-indulgence uh, the rest of the information is in regards to uh, the sequel. I don't even want to look at that yet because I haven't watched it. But there you have it, Creep 2014. I enjoyed it. And if you enjoy uh, uh, watching The League, the uh, fantasy football league about uh, football, uh, he's also in this. And he plays a crazy guy rather than being funny. But there you have it. Moving on to the last film. Here we go. 
All right, what's up, guys? I'm going to close out this uh, episode here with uh, Marked for Death, 1990, starring Steven Seagal. I'm going to start with Wikipedia this time. It is an American action film directed by Dwight H. Little, starring Steven Seagal, a DEA troubleshooter who returns to Illinois hometown to find it taken over by a posse of vicious Jamaican drug dealers led by Screwface. The Jamaicans in this film are incredibly hard to understand. They're English, man. It's very, very – well, you can understand me a lot better than I can understand them. Using a combination of fear and Jamaican uh, syncretic religion of West African and Caribbean origins to uh, Haitian voodoo. Yeah, it's a mixture of everything. And uh, it's basically like Steven Seagal's version of like Lionheart, the way that I kind of view it. Really, <laughs> or at least that's how I looked at it. Uh, they're both great in their own right. I, I enjoyed this. This has the iconic um, breaking the arm over the shoulder that I remember and obviously breaking a, a guy's kneecap. It's pretty brutal as far as the violence goes. Super, super cool. All right. Moving on, let's read about it. Uh, starring Steven Seagal, Keith David as Max Keller. Who else is in this that we know of? Betty Ford as Kate Hatcher. Uh, Danny Trejo, that's right, as Hector in the beginning. You don't see him for very much after that. He's a very, very short uh, character in this. Production-wise, Steven Seagal had wanted to hire direct... Uh, excuse me, director Dwight Little for the, his second feature, Hard to Kill. Studio Warner Brothers vetoed that choice and went with Bruce Malmuth instead. According to uh, Little... <clears throat> Seagal had the option in his contract with Warner to do one of the films after another studio. Seagal chose to exercise that option and make his third film at 20th Century Fox, where he demanded that they hire him for uh, his 1990 film, Marked for Death. I got the job because Steven insisted. Uh, that's cool that he, you know, opted for him. That's really cool. During the production, the studio was pushing for more humor in the film. Little and Seagal had made a pact to resist these attempts. Their template for the film was The French Connection. On the third day of shooting... Uh, Hard to Kill came out in theaters. Dwight Little, um, excuse me, Marked for Death and Hard to Kill came out at the same time, apparently. Uh, well, I'm, why am I fucking reading that, retarded? Jeez. On the third day of shooting Marked for Death, Hard to Kill came out in theaters. Dwight Little, it opened huge, and it stayed on top for a while. No one, including even Steven... I didn't mean to say that little Disney reference. That was a complete accident. But anyway, even Steven's beans. Yeah, Shia LaBeouf. Okay, anyway thought that this was going to be a success. It was. Frankly, just based on uh, charisma and a couple of good action scenes. I was downtown shooting a scene for Marked for Death when suddenly I see all these limos and town cars coming to the set. They were all CAA agents and producers coming out to the woodwork to see the next big action guy. They all wanted to talk to him. That's what Dwight Little had to say about it. Of Seagal's martial arts, Little said, Steven is the only guy who does what he does in the movies, where you let your opponent's energy go past you. In that respect, he's totally unique, but it's not forward, high-kicking, punching thing. That's why I felt I needed action movie stuff like car chases, gunfights, explosions, and some old-fashioned cop stuff. Because if we tried to string together a bunch of Steven fights, they will quickly start to feel the same. Okay. Interesting. Uh... The soundtrack was a lot of hip-hop, reggae, and R&B music and released on vinyl in 1990. And, uh, yeah, it had some pretty cool reggae. I definitely caught myself just listening to the credits because I was like, oh, I enjoy this. Uh, box office. Marked for Death opened at number one in the U.S. box office with the opening weekend of $11.7 making it Seagal's second straight-to-film open number one. Remained at number one for three weekends. Earned a little more than $46 million domestically and $58 million worldwide. Rotten Tomatoes, 27% of 11 uh, critics with an average of 4 out of 10. That's whatever. They can they can go F off. Audiences pulled cinema score, giving it an A to an A to F scale. I like that. New York and Washington or excuse me, New York Times and Washington Post give it a thumbs up. It was another solid Seagal action film. However, a less favorable response from Entertainment Weekly, of course. They wrote that the film is partially undone by murky cinematography. 
Uh, I could visually see what was going on. I just couldn't understand the dialogue from the Jamaican and maybe the plot with like all the different like voodoo aspects and like weird Haitian rituals. I was like, I don't understand this. Personally, I didn't get that part, but I, I enjoyed the action. Yeah, and nonetheless, and the one-liners. Uh, what did uh, Seagal say? He's talking to uh, Keith David. Before that, he's up in a, a hotel room trying to interrogate this guy and get some information. And he's like, he tells Keith David, he's like, one guy thought he could fly. One guy thought he was invincible. And Keith David's looking at him and he's like, okay, and what else? And he's like, they were both wrong. And then they just move on to the next scene. Like, you know, stuff like that is super, super, super cool. Despite Chicago Tribune being very critical of the film, I enjoyed what I saw nonetheless. His action one-liners are cool. Nothing near, nowhere near as cool as uh, Arnold, in my opinion, but still a lot of fun. I had fun with this movie. Uh, rated R, hour 33 minutes, uh, came out in 1990, according to IMDb. It has a 5.9 out of 23,000 reviews. Probably one of his higher rated uh, action films, I think, as far as IMDb goes. It's an action crime drama. A retired DEA agent is out to hunt down the Jamaican drug posse that has targeted he and his family for murder. Directed by Dwight H. Little, as I stated. Let's see what he ha- else he has done here. Uh, he did the Tekken movie. No, thanks. Broken Arrow producer. That's a solid film. John Travolta and, uh, Christian Slater. I liked that one. And that's all I really know. What else he did that he produced? He produced Broken Arrow uh, six years later in 1996. All right. Let me see what else we got going on here. Uh, starring Steven Seagal, obviously Joanna Pakula as Leslie, um, Keith David. Uh, I don't, oh yeah, that's right. Danielle Harris. That's right. She plays the daughter of a uh, Joanna Pakula, Leslie's character, Danielle Harris, obviously being in Halloween four and five and also the remakes with uh, Rob zombie. That's awesome. I forgot that she was in this. That's so cool. So, so cool. And obviously Danny Trejo, Kevin Dunn. That's right. He's in this. He's been in a lot too. He's very famous. Lieutenant Sal Roselli in the film. Oh boy. Taglines. He's a good cop in a bad mood. Oh, that's oh, that's so bad. It's it's so good. Or excuse me, it's so bad that it's good. Oh boy. Trivially, this was named one of the most violent movies of 1990 by the National Coalition on TV Violence. Uh, have they seen any horror films? Like <laughs> whatever. The villain Screwface was named after a Bob Marley song. That's cool. I don't think I knew that. Steven Seagal felt that the film has some of the best fight scenes that he's ever done, and I can probably attest to that and agree. So trivially, that is pretty cool. Steven Seagal recommended uh, Dwight H. Little after seeing Little's work on Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. That explains Mother Truck and Daniel Harris. That's why she starred in this. That makes perfect sense. Basil Wallace gained 30 pounds to play Screwface. They wanted me to look big next to Steven. And he didn't even look like he was that big. And he ended up having a brother. They chopped off the wrong guy's head and you thought it was him. But anyway, I don't really want to give too much away if you haven't seen it. But uh, I had no idea that... I uh, downloaded it digitally, and then I ended up buying a VHS copy down the road. And I was like, wait, I just bought this, and I watched it digitally, so I deleted it. I was like, dude, I have a VHS copy. I don't need to – anyway, (laughs) so that was kind of funny. Uh, What else we got here? Oh, boy, that's funny. That's so cool that Danielle Harris is in this, and they both worked on Halloween 4. I had no idea. Uh, Released October 5th, 1990. Also known as Screwface, the uh, alternative title, filmed in Chicago as it should be because that's where he goes to retire. Produced by 20th Century Fox, Steamroller, and Victor and Grive. Uh, budget was $12 million and, and it grossed 579 so hence the 60 according to uh, Wikipedia. They rounded, which is fine. I do the same type of stuff. So there you have it. Eight movies, uh, games I'm playing. I'm still playing Sparks of Hope. I really need to start playing other stuff. I just have been addicted to that. I'm, I think I'm about 41% now. I played a little bit last night. 
and I just started Mario Van Peebles as a solo on VHS. It looks like, yeah, Universal Soldier meets, I don't know, some weird black exploitation type film. I'm looking forward to uh, finishing that and talking about it. But uh, yeah, I had a lot to say on this episode. And uh, I got to get going to work. I've had a lot of caffeine and I need to go get some breakfast too. Go to 7-Eleven. They got some good breakfast tacos. For those of you out there who haven't had their breakfast tacos, highly recommended. Sponsored by 7-Eleven. No, not really. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, I talked what? Cable guy. I talked the new guy. I talked Honey, I Shrunk half of the kids because, uh, ah, pun intended, because that's all I was able to watch. Uh, California Raisins, not another teen movie. White Phantom, Creep, and Mark of Death, which is what I'm currently talking about now. And, uh, oh, recent pickups. I actually picked up yesterday two GameCube games, Tie the Tasmanian Tiger 2 and Tie the Tasmanian Tiger 3. Uh, was it Return to the Bush, I think is what the second one's called, and the third one's like Night of the Quinkin. It's basically like GameCube's Australian version of, uh, I guess, Ratchet and Clank, Sly Cooper type, Jack and Dexter type stuff. I don't think it was strictly just GameCube either. I want to say it was on other uh, consoles as well, either PS2 or the original Xbox. But, uh, Looking forward to getting into those. I need to pick, uh, pull out my uh, GameCube and uh, actually finish the first one. I had I had fun with it. It was it was a lot of fun, and it was a lot of fun doing this episode, talking these uh, mostly these movies and a little bit of uh, information in regards to behind the scenes with these movies and what games I'm playing, what games I picked up. I haven't really done too much, but uh, other than I guess watch movies and talk to you guys about it. So there you have it: eight films, games I'm playing, games I would like to play, games I picked up, VHS copies, and so forth. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, for all, as always, for the love and support, everyone. Have a good day.